So, my final sermon at Sutton Vineyard. I checked on YouTube and uh, Jason's final sermon was 45 minutes. <laughs> so what do you think? Should we try to beat that? Yeah. I'll, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> so in other news, as uh, Julian uh, mentioned earlier, today is Father's Day. Cynic as I am, I always assume Father's Day was invented by Clinton Cards. If you are cool and trendy, you probably thought it was Moonpig or Funky Pigeon. But actually, it was started by a group of churches in Washington State in 1910. When you start delving into this stuff, you find there's a day for all sorts of things. There's a pay a compliment day, which never seems to fall on a Sunday, at least when I'm speaking. Then there's a nerd and geek pride day. But then if you're a nerd or a geek, then you already know that. September the 9th is Talk Like a Pirate Day. And they say Christians are weird. And then last but not least, there's a Festival of Sleep Day, January the 3rd. Teenagers, you now have the perfect excuse. Just say that you're practicing for next year. But what I want to talk about this morning is none of those, and it's not even Father's Day. I want to talk about God as our Heavenly Father. And that's because it's one of, if not the most important images in the Bible for picturing who God is and what God is like, especially from Jesus in the Gospels. Now, describing God in terms of human characteristics is called anthropomorphism. No need to remember that, but it's worth 30 points in Scrabble if you do. And it can be very helpful because we all need to be able to picture God in terms that we can relate to. But for some of us, it can also be unhelpful in bringing up bad memories or sad memories. So it's my prayer that that won't happen this morning, that speaking about God as our Heavenly Father will be healing and not harming. So before we go any further, let me get one thing out of the way, which is that God is not biologically male. That is bad anthropomorphism. Because as someone once said, if God is male, then the male is God, and that is 100% wrong. There are actually plenty of verses in the Bible that picture God in mother language as well, but that's another talk for another day. Now, it's interesting that in the early creeds, which are the classic statements of uh, what uh, Christians believe, they all begin with God as Father. Before anything else that he's known for, the Almighty, the Lord, the Creator, or, or anything else, Father, is how we are invited to think of him. When the disciples said, teach us how to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. So what Christians believe about God and how Christians pray to God starts with God as Father. But of course, there's a potential problem here as well, because for many of us, we've not had a good experience of our earthly father. So what can happen is that we picture God in the same way, maybe as critical, harsh, angry, 
absent, not interested, fickle, and impossible to please. And we can fear that that is what God the Father is like. And fear can be the right word. In our minds, God becomes someone to be feared more than someone to be loved. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve blew it in the Garden of Eden by doing the one little thing they were asked not to do, the first thing that happened was they hid from God among the trees of the garden. And when God asked them why, Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid of you. And that is one of the things that sin does to us. It, it corrupts our understanding of what God is like. We start fearing him, hiding from him, and being afraid of him. I don't actually think that the devil's agenda is to stop us believing in God. Instead, he targets something that is far more destructive, corrupting and distorting our understanding of what God is like. That's basically what the snake was doing in Genesis 3, trying to break their trust sowing seeds of doubt in God's nature and character. In John 8, Jesus said the devil is a liar. He said there is no truth in him. And the particular lie that he's trying to sell us is that God is like the worst kind of earthly father instead of the most wonderful kind of heavenly father. A father who loves us passionately, unconditionally, as we are, who we can come to as we are, who welcomes us as we are. A father who is the complete opposite of all of those things that sadly we sometimes see in earthly fathers. Why is the devil so successful at selling his lies? Because the truth sounds too good to be true. And many Christians also think that it sounds too good to be true. So they start with God's wrath and God's holiness and our sinfulness instead. They even explain their good news as an angry father having to pour out all of that wrath and hatred of sin onto his son on the cross in order for him to be able to forgive us. As if Jesus' sacrifice calmed him down and changed his mind. Which is a terrible way of explaining the gospel. In fact, it's nothing more than a caricature. Throughout the Bible, God's defining characteristics are not wrath and anger. They're love and grace and mercy and kindness and compassion. The reason that Galatians says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, is because that is what he is like. So all of that comes with him when he comes into our lives. And of course, that's what Jesus is like. And it's what God the Father is like too, because they are one. The three persons of the Trinity are identical in their nature and character and their ways and their plans and purposes revealed to us in Jesus. The most important thing for us to get our heads around 
The most important thing for us to get right as Christians, the most important reason for us to read the Gospels, to see for ourselves in the life of Jesus, is what God is like. His nature and his character. The kind of person that he is. The things that are most important to him. The things that are least important to him. And the things that are, quite frankly, not at all important to him in the big scheme of things. That is what we need to get our heads around. As the lenses or the spectacles through which we read the Bible and we see God and we see life. It's getting all of that wrong that makes some Christians harsh and judgmental and obsessed with certain subjects and certain verses. Typically, those about holiness and sinfulness and wrath and hell. Now, I'm not saying to ignore those subjects and those verses. What I'm saying is that we cannot begin to understand them unless we first understand what God is like and who he is. Otherwise, we'll be looking at them through the wrong lens, kind of like looking through the telescope the wrong direction. We will definitely struggle to get the difficult subjects in the Bible right if we're not getting God's nature and character right. Because that is where we find the answers to those difficult subjects. And we see all of these themes coming out in one of Jesus' most famous parables, which is also actually his longest parable. And that's the one I'd like us to look at this morning in Luke chapter 15. People call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really the parable of the prodigal father, as we'll see a bit later. So parables were like short stories, made-up stories, with stereotypical characters and settings that people could relate to from their everyday life. And as people were listening to what the story was saying on the surface, the idea was that they had to listen even harder for what the story was really saying below the surface. So with parables, always ignore the features on the surface. That is never the teaching. At most, they reflect popular assumptions of the day. So before we read it, two quick things as background. The first is that Israel was occupied by the Roman legions and they taxed people very heavily. And to make it worse, their tax collectors were fellow Jews working for the Romans. So they were traitors and collaborators. And they took advantage of the protection of the Roman soldiers to overcharge people and make themselves rich in the process. Which is why it was considered scandalous for Jesus to have dinner at the house of a tax collector because they were hated even more than the Romans. If you do a quick search for tax collector in Luke's gospel, you'll see exactly what I mean. The second bit of background is that the vast majority of the ordinary people lived below the poverty line. So it was a struggle just for them to survive. So they weren't always very good at keeping Torah, which infuriated the religious leaders. But the thing about being poor was that however much you loved God, 
It was hard to offer sacrifices in the temple if you had no money to buy anything to sacrifice. If you had no food for your family, it was hard not to take work on the Sabbath if that was the only day that it was offered to you by a Gentile employer. If you were poor and a widow or divorced or a single woman with no husband or family, you were in deep trouble. So living the kind of life that the religious leaders expected was a luxury item if you were barely surviving. Okay, so let's have a look at this together. Luke 15, starting at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we can see straight away here, there are two audiences. There are two groups of people listening to the story that Jesus is about to tell. The ordinary people, the sinners, as the Pharisees thought of them, and sinners here really should be in quotation marks, and the religious leaders who are complaining about Jesus behind his back for associating with these unholy people. Even having meals with them, which was the height of welcome and hospitality in that culture. Now, there were lots of religious groups uh, around at the time of Jesus, but the one that we hear most about is the Pharisees, the ones who seem to clash with Jesus the most. And they're the ones that most Christians today think of as the bad guys. But that is not how they would have been seen at the time. The Pharisees were the ones who were the most passionate about their faith. They were the conservative evangelicals of their day. The ones who were standing up for biblical truth. The ones who cared about holiness and sinfulness and slipping standards in society and worrying about what is the world coming to. The Pharisees were convinced that the reason that Messiah hadn't yet come and that Israel was occupied by the Roman legions was the sinfulness of the people, by which they meant the poor people, the ordinary people. So the Pharisees said, you, sh- you need to stay away from them in case their sinfulness rubs off on you. So the effect of all of this was to heap condemnation onto people for whom life was tough enough already, who now had to live with the shame of being told that Israel's troubles were all their fault. And that's the main reason why Jesus clashed with the Pharisees and why he was such good news for the ordinary people. Because Jesus said, God understands what life is like for you. He gets all that. He doesn't blame you. He is for you, not against you. So keep in mind that there are these two different audiences for the story. So then Jesus tells three parables all about what it means for people to be lost. Three kinds of lostness. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin and then our one. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now the idea of 
giving your kids some of their inheritance before you die isn't a strange idea today. In fact, it's good tax planning. Nor is it strange that kids should leave home and even move abroad. Back then, it was very different. We would have heard a sharp intake of breath from the crowd, both the poor people and the Pharisees. Because in those days, everyone knew that you would never abandon the family business and you would never sell the family land because that was the only way that you could guarantee you could feed your family. Only if people got into debt and were forced to would they ever sell it. That land would be passed down through generations. So selling the land in the story would be utterly shocking to everyone listening. Shameful that the son would demand it, that was bad enough, but just as shameful that the father would agree to it. Both are acting shamefully, and we're only three sentences in. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After the younger son had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. If the start of the story wasn't bad enough, it's now even worse, even more scandalous. Here he is, the son of a Jewish father, leaving the land of Israel, which symbolized leaving the God of Israel, and working for a Gentile selfishly risking the family's future and then taking the worst job imaginable for a good Jew, looking after pigs. Utterly shameful. The Pharisees are thinking, this story illustrates everything that's wrong in Israel today. It's just the kind of behavior and falling standards that someone needs to speak up against. We can see where this story is going. It's about people getting what they deserve. No one should treat a father like that and get away with it. And that father should be ashamed of himself as well for being so weak. And the poor people are thinking exactly the same. We can see where this story is going. It's about messed up people like us. The mess that we have made of our lives and what we've got coming to us because of that. Except they're also thinking, we can see how someone could get themselves into that situation where you have no food and no money and you're starving. We understand the shameful things you have to do sometimes just to survive. We understand what it's like, as Jesus said in the story, when no one gives you anything. When he came to his senses, the younger son said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. 
The Pharisees would have been loving the story to this point. They'll be thinking, and about time too. When he gets back, he'll be humbled, humiliated, made to realize the consequences of what he's done. He'll be shamed and beaten, and that's exactly what he deserves. They're thinking, we like this story. We see what Jesus is saying and we see how it's all going to end. It proves what we've said all along, that above anything else, God is a God of justice. Sin demands punishment. And the sinners, the poor people listening, they would have assumed exactly the same. Because that's what they'd been told their whole lives that they too were people who screw everything up and let everyone down. They're thinking that the deeper meaning of this parable must be that they are the object of God's anger too. Because the mess that that son is in feels a lot like the mess that they are in. So everyone listening is expecting the same ending when that son gets home. First of all, the father won't be available. He's been dishonored and shamed by this rebellious son. So the whole village will have been mocking him and laughing at him behind his back for allowing what's happened. So the father will make him wait, make him sweat, stand in the sun, maybe for hours. And when the father does eventually agree to see him, it will be a very frosty reception. The son will be expected to bow low and kiss the father's feet. The father will tell him what work he has to do as a slave and for how many years. Because becoming a slave was how you paid back your debts. And then he'll be beaten and punished as he deserves. And that is how everyone listening will be expecting the story to end. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Every single day that that son has been gone, the father's been looking out for him on the horizon. That's how he sees him when he's still a long way off and he runs out to him. Why does he do that? He wants to reach the sun before the sun reaches the village. He wants to protect him from the shame and the abuse. Respectable Jewish heads of family would never run. It was totally undignified. He would have to gather up his long robe in his hands and expose his bare legs. More gasps from the crowd. This is, this is so humiliating. The son is a mess and he smells like a pig, but the father embraces him and kisses him. The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So the son starts his speech, that one that he's been practicing, the one that is supposed to end with, make me like one of the servants. But the father cuts him off. He doesn't let him get to that bit. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Despite everything that the son has done, the father refuses to receive him as a servant. He insists on receiving him as a son. And because that calf would have been enough to feed everyone, the father is inviting the whole village to see that that is what he's doing. So that's nearly the end of the story. And at this point, we're all thinking that we've heard the good news ending. But the Pharisees wouldn't have seen it like that at all. Everything in this story so far has been bad news. A shameful son and a shameful father. They're still waiting for the hero to emerge in the story. And here he comes now. Meanwhile, the eldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back, safe and sound. But the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. The Pharisees are thinking, at last, this is our boy. That son has acted shamefully. That father has acted shamefully. And now he's got the whole village involved in a shameful celebration. And no one's done anything about it until now. Now the older brother will put things right. Someone who has standards, who cares about holiness, and who takes sin seriously. The older brother is showing everyone where he stands by refusing to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now some of us might be thinking, you know, the older brother does seem to have a point here. After all, he didn't do anything wrong. Surely he's got a fair complaint. Well, actually, no, he hasn't because the way that Jewish inheritance laws worked When a father divided up an estate, the younger son got one-third and the older son got two-thirds. But still, he complains, you never give me anything. At the very start of the story, the older son kept quiet, possibly because it suited him. Never once did he try to talk to his brother or support his father. And then refusing to come into the father's party being angry at him and criticizing him and making a scene, telling the father who he is and isn't allowed to forgive, 
All of that is just as dishonorable. But the religious leaders have turned a blind eye to that because religious people are always selective about sin, especially other people's sin versus their own. Maybe you've noticed that. And do you know what that older brother's main complaint is against the father? Too much grace and mercy and kindness. Low standards, too much understanding, too much forgiveness. Not enough justice, being soft on sin, not enough wrath and judgment. Too much of a liberal. So the big question is, what will these two different audiences have been taking away from the story? The Pharisees have now realized the deeper meaning that Jesus had in mind. And they're struggling to figure out how the good guy, as they saw it, has suddenly ended up looking like the bad guy. Worst of all, Jesus seems to be saying that just like they misread the Father in the story, they've also been misreading God the Father. They've misunderstood his nature and character and priorities and what is most important to him, which is always people. They've shaped a God who's a religious conservative in their image rather than shaping themselves in God's image. But the poor people and the tax collectors are overjoyed because it seems like there's another chance for people like them who get themselves in a mess. Is Jesus saying that to us, they're wondering? That if people like us, in a mess like us, approach God the way that the younger son approached his father, that God will embrace us and hug us and kiss us and throw a party for us? Can that really be us in the story? I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. However bad things were for them, and that picture that Jesus painted of that younger son is pretty much as bad as it gets, God the Father was inviting them to come home too, and to come as they are because they will be welcomed in exactly the same way. It just starts with turning around and heading back towards the Father. And when we do, he will come running to hug us and kiss us just as we are, even if we are smelling of pigs. We don't even have to make a good speech and get all the words right. And servanthood and slavery aren't even on the table, only sonship. So that's the story that Jesus told, the one that people call the parable of the prodigal son. And that word prodigal means recklessly extravagant, being lavish to a point of foolishness which is of course what the younger son did with his inheritance. But that's only the surface meaning because the story really isn't about the son. It's really about the father. It is about reckless extravagance and being lavish to a point of foolishness, 
but not so much the sons as the fathers. Our heavenly father's love for us is like the father's love in the story. It's recklessly extravagant, lavish to a point of foolishness. And that is why it really should be the parable of the prodigal father. Maybe you're thinking, this sounds a bit liberal, a bit progressive. Good thing Steve's going. (laughs) But be careful, folks, because that's exactly what the Pharisees were thinking. It sounds too easy. Cheap grace. Where's the balance here? Where's the wrath and the fear and the judgment? That's what the older brother was thinking too. But the father was too busy partying to worry about balance. The grace of God is so amazing that it looks exactly like the father in the story. Is God a God of justice? Of course he is. Is God interested in how we live and what we do? Of course he is. But we need to be so careful about so balancing this story that Jesus gave us by adding all sorts of caveats and conditions for this, that, and the other that Jesus chose to leave out. That we end up diluting God's reckless, extravagant love and turning it into something that sounds more reasonable and more respectable instead of the party time that God intends it to be. Anna, maybe I can ask you and the worship team to come back. Thank you. So I wonder whether you would like to receive some of that recklessly extravagant, lavish to the point of foolishness, love and grace of God this morning. Because it's available freely available. He wants all of us to be receivers of that recklessly extravagant, lavish to the point of foolishness, love and grace. And then he wants us to recklessly, extravagantly and lavishly give it away, to copy him, to do what we see the Father doing as Jesus did. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. The more we give away, the more room there is for us to receive more. So if you'd like to do that this morning, if you're able to, why don't we stand together?